to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today we are doing our second of two Pride-related month, Pride Month-related podcasts. And there are two people that actually um, have a similar passion in the fact that Cynthia Carey Grant, who is the co-chair of the 23rd International AIDS Conference, uh, we also did an interview with uh, Monica Gandhi. Um, she is the former executive director of Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Disease, or WORLD, clever acronym, which was an Oakland-based agency serving women with HIV and AIDS. She has 30 plus years of extensive community and government relations experience. Um, we joked that she must, be, uh, she must have started when she was 10. And then 20 plus years of executive level management and operations experience in nonprofit and community service organizations. So she knows a lot about uh, what she speaks. So welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. So you shared what uh, was maybe one of the uh, more unique little tidbits about our guests that we've had, and we've had quite a few guests across a broad perspective. Um, and this maybe could be the most relevant COVID-19 uh, conversation I've had based on your legacy. You told me as we were doing a little bit of prep that you are the daughter of three generations of community health services um, nurses dating back to the Spanish flu pandemic. And uh, this is your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother. Let's start off the show by talking about that and, and what an amazing sort of connection to our one of our last major global pandemics was. Yes, this is very important because my grandmother um, became a nurse uh, during the 20, excuse me, 1917 Spanish flu pandemic. And it was, uh, she was inspired because of how she saw the flu was impacting at that time, the colored section of Philadelphia, and, uh, and in particular women. And so this is a very deep tradition in my family, uh, one that if, if I was to really describe myself, that is motivated primarily because of a desire to, um, to address disparities, health disparities, and social justice activism. And so it's incredible that here we are over 100 years later, and I'm still working on some of the same issues. Yes, one might say it's disappointing that we're working on some of the same issues. Um, and it's interesting because we have had three major things that are impacting us, right? We have COVID-19, which struck at the beginning of the year and then hit the United States hard in uh, late February, early March. Uh, we have the all of the sort of unrest and justly so around the healthcare disparities and social justice and inequality, inequality, which feels like it's gone backward over the last you know dozen years. And then we have Pride Month, which obviously is a positive, but it's a little bit hard because you know we're trying to celebrate something so important during such a difficult period, especially with political um, political nonsense that goes on without making this a political podcast in the background. So I guess let's start by talking a little bit about some of the positive with someone that has such unique perspective that you do, and that is what key initiatives are underway to address some of these disparities. We can talk broader society and then maybe narrow down a little bit to um, what you're focusing on, in particular the HIV piece. 
Well, I, I think the difference between 100 years ago and now really is um, the reaction of the people who are most affected by uh, the disparity, the health disparities in our communities. So it's real important for me to say that as a Black woman in the United States, um, and, it, and it's, it's strange to me because it sort of was during Black History Month that we just started to begin to hear about the COVID-19 pandemic. And here we are, another History Month, you know, Pride Month, and we're still in the middle of it. But what's different is, different is that people are not accepting that this is the way it has to be. They're actually, you know, saying enough is enough. And people, young people in particular, across all of the various communities are coming together and saying that this is not okay. This is part of the protest. Even though we're seeing the protest center around Black Lives Matter, what we are seeing, though, is that the different communities are, are, are reacting to the personal impact that this kind of um, just insensitivity, lack of caring. I, I don't know how else to say it because it's, it wouldn't, we're not just being political, we're just talking facts. So when you see the president willing to um, put trans women's lives at risk or trans people's lives at risk, when you see um, the, this administration um, rolling back on um, healthcare uh, to targeted communities. It is personal. And what we're seeing is people saying, no, we're not going to take it. And thank God the Supreme Court agrees with them. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. And I agree 100%. I will personally let you know that I've been on a journey. You know, I've always tried to be someone that's um, very sensitive and an ally and helpful, but I'm learning a lot. And I've learned a lot, you know, watching uh, documentaries like 13th and, um, you know, really trying to dig in. We had uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the founder of the 1619 Project uh, on this very show. And so listening to that podcast again and some of her messages, it was interesting because she predicted that the only thing that was going to make this healthcare disparities better was a revolution. Well, <laughs> It kind of feels like we've got one that's underhand and uh, justifiably so. And then you're right. We did have this historic ruling by SCOTUS on uh, protecting and upholding healthcare benefits, but then you also have the president attacking them and trying to roll back some of the protections of transgendered people, which is horrific. And, and it's not something that we should have to deal with. I guess, let me ask you a question because I heard some positivity in your voice. It does feel like this is different and what happened to George Floyd and, and all of the others that, you know, hundreds of thousands probably over time that have been um, killed, uh, have been treated unfairly, mainly because of their race or skin color. I, I, I have hope that things are going to change. And it sounds like maybe you have some hope that things are changing too, because of the fact that young people are standing up and, and protesting. And I think a lot of people, I'm a 51 year old white male, I care, like I'm getting out there and I'm doing things to really help move the needle because I've always cared, but I realize actions now mean more than anything. So I'll be quiet and I'll, you know, love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, what's heartening is that people seem to be getting it uh, way ahead of the government and political leaders, and we're not surprised by that, but people seem to be getting the fact that when you talk about community health, 
you have to factor in that we're talking about all of us. So it's, it's like this, that's what the, this pandemic is showing us. There's no, well, I'm black. I don't have to worry about it. I'm gay. It's not going to happen to me. We have through the years gone through that and said, oh, this disease only affects this group of people. And then we find out that it's not true. So it behooves us to finally start just, you know, doing the things that are important and necessary from the beginning so that we can protect the health of, of everyone. That's what community or public health is. Yeah. And it's something that, um, you know, God knows we still have a long way to go, but I do feel like there is a collective consciousness and awareness and you, you hit on an important point. This does feel like this is a from us by us and, and corporations are getting involved as well. And it's not the government, right. Which is probably what needs to happen other than us all getting out to vote on, you know, both our primaries and then in November when it really counts and, you know, no excuses after that because we need, and short of the <laughs> gerrymandering and the closing of polls shenanigans that uh, certain people like to try to pull off. But what I would say is that the, I don't think that the corporations are doing it purely from a benevolent point of view. I think that they are following the public. They're following vast m members of the public and the community that are leading the way and saying this is the way it's going to be and we're not going to listen to anything different. And that's what I love about the young people taking lead here. They're not asking permission. They're not saying, what do you think? <laughs> you know, or asking, what do you think? Or should we do this? They're saying enough is enough. And so I think where that will go to is like, let's take some specific health disparities. One that has really always annoyed me. Um, the, uh, the, the, the mortality and morbidity of black women giving birth. Um, if you're a black woman, the, the chances of you dying in, in, in um, childbearing is extraordinarily much higher than if you're a white woman. Well, we've known this for years. And not only are you at risk of dying, but your baby is at much higher risk of dying. And that's uh, across the, the globe. Um, but you have someone like a Serena Williams who almost dies from childbirth. And then it takes that for people to realize, oh my goodness. So it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter, you know, that if you're, if you're a top athlete, there's something that's going on here. We need to pay attention because it can happen to any of us. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned something in your previous response. And that was, I've talked to a bunch of people and the impact of COVID and everything that's happening right now, it's almost like it's been an alien invasion, right? It's the first time in history where we've had so many people impacted by a common enemy. And you're right, it doesn't care about race or doesn't care about income. It doesn't care about gender or any of those things. And it is nice to see um, the youth step up. And we were lucky enough to have some of the founders of, uh, of um, March for Our Lives, you know, the, the folks that are focused, the young people that are focused on having better um, enforcement of, of gun, gun rights and, and really making sure they're being vigilant. And they didn't stop either. You know, like you said, they're keeping people accountable. And you're right, businesses are, I think some are benevolent. I think a lot, you're right, are, are being held accountable by their consumers, by their employers, employees, and, and they really are making, you know, some good decisions. Hopefully we continue to see that. 
And that will be the question is how long, you know, can we sustain this hopefully for many years to come because this is what it's going to take to really evoke uh, change. You know, you, you use the word see that. And that, that reminds me that one of the major differences that's happening now is that we have so many people who are watching and recording. So it, not only do we have people videotaping um, police brutality, but we have people who are bringing attention to all manners of things that's going on in our society. And I think that that makes a difference too. And so what that means is that people also have a vision of how it can be. And they know that, you know, you don't have to be crippled. You don't have to be sick. HIV doesn't have to kill you. Um, you do not have to die as a result of childbirth. That, that we have the technology. We have the biomedical expertise. It just really is a matter of the will of our of our governments and the will of the people. Yes, which is as it should be, but along a fair playing field, right? Which is, I think, the thing that we're really striving to, to achieve. One of the things that I would like to talk a little bit more about is, you know, you had a very unique role in the fact that you were um, an, an executive director for World, which is an Oakland-based agency serving women with HIV AIDS. At least my public perception, I think a lot of the the rest of the world's public perception is AIDS tends to be a disease that has impacted men, particularly gay men, more than women. I suspect that's probably not completely true. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that and then what was some of the work that you did and and continue to do um, in your current role in helping women with HIV and AIDS? Well, first of all, it's absolutely not true, and particularly today. When we talk about HIV, if we look about look at what's happening across the globe, we're looking at black women. That's who's bearing the burden and the brunt of HIV. And so uh, that's, that's the first and the most important thing that people need to realize. We need to realize that in this country, we have um, disproportionate number of black women being impacted, particularly black women who live in the South. And when I say disproportionate, I mean, if you represent 10% or 15% of the population, but you carry 25% of the burden, 24% of the burden, or, or in the case of women, you know, of all women, black women uh, constitute like 65% of the burden of uh, people of black, excuse me, of women living with HIV. So that's what we mean by disproportionate. And so we know that this is, not purely a biomedical issue, that there's other things that are in play here. Some of it is um, the impact of racism. We've never really spent time um, looking at that the way that we should. But the other thing that is important for people to realize is that when you talk about how disease affects a woman, because women are the primary caregivers um, in almost all across our societies in the world, when something impacts them, when they are not well, it impacts the entire family. And um, women are the ones who are living at the intersection of poverty and violence. So these are, these are also things that um, must be considered when you come up with programs and, and, and projects to try to change those things around. Well, that's a critically important point. And thank you for one, correcting my perception and sharing those insights because 
you know, that is a really important piece is that women traditionally do play that role of being the heart of the family. And if they're being disproportionately impacted, then that has much greater impact beyond just an individual uh, having to bear the burden of, of this horrific disease. I do want to shift a little bit back to what we started off with, which was we were talking about COVID-19. We have HIV, which has been around, I think, since the 70s and then really hit or hit, hit the United States in the 70s and became a pandemic in the 80s. So it's been around for 40 years. Um, we've seen a tremendous evolution, although it still haunts us and is still a very present threat and danger. What parallels are there between these two um, diseases? And you know, what is it that we think is important to understand to sort of help us better address not just HIV, but COVID going forward? Actually, when I think about the question, I think how there are so many lessons we have learned in dealing with HIV that scientists and the government could learn from to help deal with this current pandemic. Um, and, and one of them I've heard Dr. Burks um, refer to quite a bit. She, she has shared on numerous occasions how um, the scientific community were able to make advances because they listened to the people who were being impacted by HIV. And they took some of the things from those experiences into consideration when they were addressing programs and coming up with strategies to try to deal with um, HIV. And I think that the same thing has to happen with COVID. I mean, I can tell you, I almost every black person I know in my community has been touched by the pandemic in some way. Either someone has um, died as a result or someone is very sick. And so there are some things that maybe people need to be talking to me and my family and people in my community about what's going on here. What do we, what do we need to be paying attention to? What are we missing? Or maybe it's about why don't you trust us enough to, you know, uh, engage in testing? Or I, I know so many Black folks who are so suspicious that they don't want to participate in clinical trials. So there are a lot of things that we can learn from how we've been able to get over some of these same kinds of stigma and, and, and biases around HIV, because it wasn't until we said that that this was more important than our issues, than our, you know, our prejudices, that we, that we needed to, to address this disease. And uh, we've seen a sea change. So I'm hoping that, that's why it's really, really wonderful that we're able to have a whole day on COVID-19 um, tacked on to our, to our, you know, our conference, because we already will have most of the world's um, most renowned uh, epidemiologists and, and researchers and scientists uh, participating in the HIV conference. And it makes sense for them to, to stay together and, and, and do that transition. Yeah, I think that was an amazing pivot that you all decided on. And uh, the timing could not be better, especially since I believe this is the first of its kind that's really addressing COVID-19 holistically with uh, the AIDS piece coming on, on the back of it. I do want to talk more about that in a minute, but I do have a follow-up question. And you spurred this when you were talking about 
um, black women, particularly in the South, being disproportionately affected. I'd love to know, like, where are we seeing the highest number of new HIV cases in the U.S., and why are we seeing that? Well, we have to look at it in different ways. Um, geographically, we're seeing it in the southeastern parts of the United States. Um, a lot, unfortunately, has to do with um, the healthcare services that are available in that area. Um, it's no coincidence that many of those states um, have refused to become part of um, Obamacare. Um, they, they uh, you know, just declined the Medicaid waivers. Um, and then you have uh, just the burden of not having the kinds of educational uh, and um, community programs that we've come to expect in, in the Northeastern part of the United States and in the Western part of the United States. So that education and information is not as readily available, and not to mention testing and, and um, wraparound services. Because what we know is that HIV, HIV will flourish at the intersection of poverty and violence. And, and if, you, if you don't have the appropriate shelter, can you imagine trying to store medication that needs to be refrigerated, et cetera? So those things um, make managing HIV much more complicated. And at this stage, we honestly can say it's about managing HIV um, as we are on our way to a cure or, the, or an end to the epidemic. So no one has to die, but people still do because there is just a disproportionate um, a, amount of attention and, and resources given to certain geographic areas over others. So that's the first important part. The other part though is that we're still seeing way too many um, um, black gay men dying and or being um, affected or acquiring HIV. And um, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a huge area. And then we have the stigmatized communities. Um, if you're a sex worker, and that's all over the world, but you know, in the US, if you're a sex worker, if you're a person that uses drugs, um, there's some stigma associated with both of those areas that you are, you know, hesitant to try to go get assistance. And so that's going to affect the numbers who are going to become um, affected by HIV. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of um, important information there, and I'm, I'm just processing that. I guess let me drill down on that a little bit more. I think I know the answer to this, but why is it that African-American men, gay men, happen to be more impacted? Is it a lack of education or a lack of access to healthcare services or, uh, by education, I mean education about sex, not lack of education in general. Um, tell us a little bit more about why, why you think that's happening or why you know that's happening. Well, I have to tell you, sometimes I have kind of a reaction whenever I get that question because, you know, the same thing with about black women. How, why do black why are black women, um, you know, uh, having to deal with the bur with the burden of HIV more so? And I, you know, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of reasons, but most of it has to do with just how we um, what I talked about earlier: the availability of healthcare, access to healthcare. Um, the fact that we are somewhat of an insular community. Um, and in fact, I often say we need to just continue to, uh, 
do more research and, and, and spend more time trying to find out from those communities exactly why um, this is happening. Because, you know, data helps us, but also uh, human relations and trust are very, very important um, if you want to solve a public health issue. So it's not just about the, about the science. It's about the science, it's about research and data, but it's also about just being human. Well, this is helpful. And I, I meant, I only asked that question because I think that people do need to know the answers to these and there are some misperceptions. And so thank you for um, providing that. And, and uh, you know, it's one of those things where, again, all of these issues are coming to light today. And I know we talked on our last podcast about some governors declaring uh, racism, a national health crisis. And obviously these are some of the reasons why uh, no one should be, I mean, no one should have to suffer, but no one should have to unduly suffer because of skin color or, you know, economics or geography or any of those things in particular uh, sexual orientation. I do want to talk a little bit about the conference because you started to head down that path and this is a critically important place to educate people, right? So, um, we did unfortunately have to go virtual because of the fact that it's not necessarily safe to be out there and in, uh, in mass gatherings. Uh, but the 23rd International AIDS Conference, which I believe is coming up the 6th to the 10th of July, and then you have the COVID conference up front to that. Let's talk a little bit about what went into taking a conference that was supposed to be physical in Oakland and in San Francisco and translating that into one universal virtual event? Well, it was uh, uh, quite extraordinary, difficult, amazing, uh, all of those things. I mean, can you imagine? It's like you're on this big ship and you're, 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 everything is, uh, goes perfectly because we're used to doing this and you've got all of these um, you know, routines and, and things down pat. And all of a sudden somebody says, oops, we've got to turn this ocean liner around. Yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> that's exactly. I understand there's a little thing, a trim tab or something that's on a, a, a huge ship that helps to make that happen. And, um, and in this instance, the trim tab would be the, the incredible staff at, the, um, at IAS. Um, because they've never done anything like this before. But when we thought about it and we talked about it, it was it was really difficult because part of what's important for a conference like this that includes so many so many different communities, scientists, community activists, um, healthcare providers, is the opportunity to come together and create some kind of a synergy that will you know, this is where revolutionary ideas are born. And so the challenge for us was to try to make it as close as we possibly can to having that real experience, even though it's virtual. Um, it needs to have some kind of sense of, you know, we are live and connecting together. Fortunately, the technology has um, really evolved to the place that that is pretty possible. And then younger people seem to be much more comfortable in, in case anybody hadn't figured it out, that doesn't include me. But um, um, I have learned a lot in the process. So what we had to do is make sure that all of the components that would normally be in the conference, whether it's from the global village to 
special um, sessions and rooms and sections for people to engage was included in the virtual experience. You know, COVID is changing a lot of things and we may not like being on 50 million Zoom calls, but we are starting to get adjusted to it. And I think that's gonna be, I think that we are probably uh, on the vanguard at the, at the International AIDS Conference with doing a huge international conference that hopefully other organizations and institutions will learn from. Well, it sounds like an amazing event. And uh, I do wanna have a important tactical question, which is where do people go to register? I believe the registration is free now, which makes it infinitely more accessible to people, but maybe you wanna share the URL and any strategies in terms of how people might want to attend virtually? All you have to do is to look up or Google 2020 International AIDS Conference, and that'll direct you to where you need to go because you can still register. And the COVID conference is free. So we want to encourage people to go there. And you don't have to pay registration to, in order to go to the, to the public um, sites. So if you want to go attend the Global Village and interact with people from all around the world, we welcome you. And then just a little shortcut, because I think most people do navigate via Google these days. So that's a, a great shortcut there. But uh, I believe if you go to AIDS2020.org, you can also get more information about both of those and can uh, get signed up, correct? Yes, AIDS2020.org. Perfect. So my last question, which is a bigger picture question, which I teed up to you at the beginning of the show. Um, so I gave you a few minutes of notice, but not a ton of notice. And I'm very curious to hear what your answer is because uh, I very much enjoyed this conversation. If you had a magic wand or a wish and you could sort of ask for one thing, personal or for you know global goodness, what would it be? Well, um, I do have a magic wand and I would sprinkle fairy dust or stardust or whatever on all of the people who currently have influence and power. And when they woke up, they would say, oh my, we need to make sure that there's a level playing field all across the globe. And we want to eliminate all life-threatening disease. That is maybe one of the most clever answers to that. And I think that there are a lot of us that would love that same uh, magic wand or wish because that really, is what we need to do. And maybe we help grease the skids a little bit by getting everyone out to vote when it comes time so that we can make sure that we help those officials, even if they've been sprinkled <laughs> with fairy dust. <laughs> to well, That's what I said when I said I have the magic wand because I, I believe that day is coming with all my heart. Because can you just imagine if people weren't concerned about whether and if they, well, that's where the axiom comes from. If you have your health, you have everything. Yeah. You know, imagine the wonderful human resources and the incredible, you know, imagination and creativity that would take place if people weren't concerned about whether or not they can survive. Yeah, that's a, a powerful statement. And with that, I am going to wrap up. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2 and host of the What to Know podcast show. And we have had the luxury of having Cynthia Carey Grant, who is the co-chair of the 23rd International AIDS Conference, former executive director of Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Disease, amazing community 
uh, government relations experience, amazing nonprofit community service organizations, you know, helping to truly make society a better place. Cynthia, thank you for taking this time with me. Thank you for putting good into the world and thank you for being patient with me. Most of all, I really appreciate your very thoughtful and empathetic answers and uh, we appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me and I want to remind everybody, Black Lives Matter. Thank you, that is an incredibly important PSA. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.